This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, Practical for Your Practice. We give you actionable intel to support what you do. One colleague to another. Hey everyone, welcome to Practical for Your Practice. Andy here. Nice to nice to see you again. I guess I can't really see you, but I'm pretending I can see all you out there, all the millions of listeners we have, right? Right, Jenna? Absolutely. Millions and millions. Yes, we're glad you've joined us today for sure. Welcome of to we have, Practical for Your Practice. Of course, we have Jenna Ermold with us. Glad you could be on the podcast today, Jenna. Me as well, Andy. It's a great topic. I think so too. And uh, I'm really excited to have Dave Dahl with us. Uh, Dave and I go back a ways and um, we'll tell you about what we're going to get into in in a minute. But Dave, do you want to say hello and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah. Hi, everybody. First of all, thank you for having me on your podcast. It's a real honor to to be a part of this. Sure. My name is Dave Dahl and I am a I I practice clinical social work um, and psychotherapy primarily with veterans uh, at a residential unit for trauma um, SMI or severe mental illness and mood disorders is pretty much mostly what we see there. Um, my my uh, practice is starting to branch out beyond that, um, starting to work with some local police departments on trauma and how to cope with trauma and kind of navigate that on the job and in their personal lives. Um, as far as my background, I need to, you know, say that I, I have limited clinical experience. Uh, I think I am new as a social worker. I graduated last year and was just a licensed dependently. Yeah. Um, last summer. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, I am definitely new to the clinical uh, practice, the technical side of things. That is for sure. Um, I feel uh, I'm not so new to the subject of moral injury and post-traumatic growth um, in my uh, personal life and some of my other previous um, places of work. So I am a Marine veteran um, and I served uh, quite a while ago um, in uh in the in the mid 90s i served and i was on a ship that was part of the whole bosnian war um thing that was going on in 95 um and in addition to that uh, after that uh went through some tough times and had to find a way to recover and now i'm a person in recovery and during that time you know i became a uh an educator for uh, disadvantaged and adju- adjudicated youth. So I worked a lot with some, a lot of trauma there uh, and a lot of moral injury as well. And I am now a Zen Buddhist priest, uh, a social worker, a person in recovery and a father and a husband. You have such a rich history <laughs> and like such a fascinating journey um, that uh, there's, there's so many parts of your history and the things you just mentioned that I love to, to hear more about. And certainly we've talked about you and I before. Um, and when we were talking about this, this podcast, we kind of struggled a little bit, you and I figuring out what were going to be the main topics to talk about. Um, because, and we were just joking right before we started recording here that we probably have got about six hours worth, at least of potential <laughs> be, topics. Um, 
but I thought maybe uh, a place for us to to center our discussion might be on, you, you know, you mentioned moral injury and also moral growth. And um, what's I think really unique and interesting about you as a guest is you kind of you've gone through this process from the other side. So now you're, you know, sort of on the clinical side, but you've gone through this process as, you know, someone who is in recovery. And so, you know, what, what I'm interested in maybe starting this discussion with is when it comes to the, the term moral injury, what does that mean to you? Well, There's, I think there's three things I'd like to say about that. There's a couple definitions that I've found that I really appreciate. I'd like to share because I think they kind of broaden um, what I often hear people associate moral injury as. Um, I kind of see it, it sometimes it, it maybe a broader concept than some people that I've interacted with about it. So um, I've got one. It's a uh, let's at all quote the profound psychological distress which results from action or the lack of action, which violates one's moral ethical code. Mm. I appreciate that one too, because it, it, it includes the lack of action, right? That sense of powerlessness that people can feel in certain situations that can cause moral injury. The other one is a dresser uh, quote, um, Dis- disruption in an individual's confidence and expectations about one's own or others' motivation or capacity to behave in a just and ethical manner. What I really appreciate about that quote is it reminds me of what I experienced as a veteran and what I see in so many of my veterans um, that are back here in the world, right? So um, they, they, we have, you know, questioned, um, question everybody else's capacity to act in an ethical manner because of our experience. So if I were to describe moral injury in my own words and more in the way that I may have experienced it, I would describe it as um, someone who grew up kind of suspicious of the way things worked in the world anyway, just a little suspicious, and then join the Marines, go overseas, get exposure to uh, very serious situation over in Bosnia where it was a you know NATO peacekeeping mission, if you could call it that. Um, but it involved extensive, extensive air campaigns. Um and so to see some of that devastation and to actually like a month after a lot of that stuff happened, go and uh go on liberty in Trieste, Italy, which is not far from the border of that whole region. Um, and see children that were refugees saying that their parents, you know, were killed by bombs and believing that, you know, that was our ship. That was our unit that was over there doing that. Uh, what it kind of did was it, the experience is kind of like somebody pulled the curtains back on reality and said, okay, this is what the world's really about. It's a terrible, shitty, scary, evil place. This is what it looks like behind the curtain that we may have drawn in front of us back in the safety of our own homes back in the U.S. So that's just kind of my personal take on the concept of how I experienced it. I, I sincerely appreciate your generosity and sharing that experience. And I think it's it, it really does highlight both of those definitions that you mentioned 
Um, and it reminds me a lot of, I, I'm not sure you're familiar with Claude Anshin Thomas. He, um, he's a, he's actually a Zen Buddhist monk and he's wrote a book called, um, oh, I'm going to forget the name of it now at hell's gate. He was a, a door gunner in Vietnam. And when, when he talks about moral injury, he talks about it in a very similar way. It's like the, the veil of justice has been torn and you can't unsee what you saw on the other side. And in that experience, you mentioned just that juxtaposition um, of those two worlds coming together uh, and, and having a real difficulty and the impossibility of not seeing what you've already seen. Um, even though you might not have played a specific part in uh, you, you know, the bombing runs and things like that, just being a part of that world and seeing how like this other part of the world just doesn't appreciate and could never really see that is a huge, huge thing to try to reconcile. Yeah, it really it, go ahead, please. No, go ahead. If you're going to respond to that, I, I can, it, it really will. It really is. And it didn't, you know, it didn't uh, seem to have the quite the effect. The long term effect, I'd say, was more detrimental in a sense. Although going there after participating in that and experiencing some trauma on my end um, and then seeing the actual children on the streets begging with a sign. And I'm just like, here's all my money. You know, I, I can't even confirm whether what your sign is saying is true or not. I'm just going to assume that it is here. Take all my money, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, and so that that really became uh, maybe a bigger part of my story, a bigger part of my experience than a lot of the actual trauma that I experienced. And I was kind of interested as you were talking, um, you described yourself as going in to the Marines as a, you know, potentially more suspicious, um, in general kind of personality. Um, and I'm, and I was thinking how, you know, you've got your person factors, right? Like who they are, how they see the world going into, and then you've got these specific situations, or I think, um, maybe described as, as, uh, moral injurious behaviors, things that, organizations or, or people do that may, may or may not impact a person or they may impact somebody differently given what they're coming in with um, and how, you know, that's kind of important for providers to think about. It's not just you were exposed to these things, but it's the, the human and the person behind that exposure that may experience it differently depending on, you know, who they are and, and, and the factors that they come in with. Um, do you think that that sort of plays a part in it that, that, um, you were, and I'm not saying this in a way like, well, if you weren't suspicious, this wouldn't have happened. But like, do you think there are some things that you've seen in your work with lots of service members or in, in stories you've heard of folks who have experienced moral injury, that it's kind of both of those things put together or what could set somebody up, I guess, to potentially experience this um, differently than others. I think it's great that you picked up on that. Um, the more I look at that, the more I believe it is a, an important factor uh, in experiencing that. Um, I went in maybe not with the best self-esteem, um, very kind of unsure of myself, unsure of my place in the world. I, 
had divorced parents. One parent was there and and was was wonderful. And uh, it was a different experience on the other end. So I, I went in with this un, this real unsure feeling of where I fit. I lacked confidence, even though I put myself out there anyway. But I always lacked a lot of confidence. And I went to boot camp and I went there weighing 135 pounds. <laughs> I was I was pretty small um, for my height. And I remember going there and it's a scary place, uh, but I'm just doing it. And before I knew it, very early on, I was watching people have a really, really hard time physically, mentally. I mean, crying, screaming, all those things. Uh, and I found that I was functioning really rather well in that environment. So much so that I just bought it fully. It became who I was and I really excelled. And that was kind of my story throughout the Marines too. I, I was, a, I, I, I think I was a really good Marine. Um, I just lived it. I became fanatical about it. I think that's kind of what it takes to be, you know, a real high functioning Marine. I, I mean, I was infantry, then I went to the sniper unit and then I ended up in another special unit after that. Um, and so you put everything, your heart and soul into this, it becomes the most important thing that you have. And this is what I'm holding on to. And I'm getting the praise finally, and I'm getting the confidence, the well-earned confidence. And then some stuff happens. And it shakes that up and it leaves this kind of mark or this injury, the scar or something. And you kind of keep going with it, but it's kind of like an itch back there. You can feel it and you know, something's up, but you just keep going because this is what I'm good at. And later on when I got out, that's when the coping skills that I had developed in the Marines no longer applied in the civilian world, they're, they're pretty much frowned upon. Um, and that's when that kind of wound started opening up, I'd say. So yes, the short answer is I definitely believe sort of like I've done a lot of work with uh, folks that are in recovery from addiction and, and a majority of the stories that I have heard goes back to this feeling of not fitting in, feeling different than unsure of yourself. Uh, maybe some self-esteem issues, even in childhood before they started using. I, I kind of relate to it like that as well. That, that's really fascinating. Um, and I'm so glad you explained it that way, because, you know, we talk a lot in our military culture trainings about this warrior ethos, this this sort of like warrior ideal that really in many ways allows the you know, the Marine, the soldier to do the work they have to do that, they, you know, they kind of really take on these core values of, of service and they, they're all in like, kind of like you just explained, right? Like, and this, this word ethos is what drives them to, um, you know, do the fairly impossible things we ask many of our service members to do, but when there's a, when that's cracked, right? Like when that, when that event happens that, like you said, sort of shakes that up, the more in you are, like the more you really kind of are identify with that, with the culture and identify with this ethos, the harder it is to kind of wrap your head around how these things like fit together. Um, and, and it really feels like, um, you know, you feel it that much more strong. So I think that was a, a great way to, to sort of 
it's very conceptual when we talk about it. And I, and I'm loving this discussion because I feel like you've really done a wonderful job of sort of like walking us through what that looks like for you as a, as a human, as a Marine that experienced that. So thank you. Sure. Well, thank you. Dave, one of the things that um, you said inside of uh, all the really super interesting things you said just a moment ago was um, the, the, the things maybe that work to help you to cope in the context of the military, for example, when, when, when you switched over to the civilian world, didn't work quite as well. And, um, what I'm curious about is, you know, how that perspective, that personal perspective might help you when you're engaging with a veteran who maybe you suspect could have had similar experiences, maybe as dealing with moral injury, um, what, what does that sort of help you to look out for maybe notice that maybe someone who hasn't sort of been through your, your life experiences um, might not see. Mm. <laughs> I laugh just because there's so much there and I still have that warrior in me that, that thinks back to the way we dealt with things. And um, it's, it's so here's what I, I would say. It have res to have a lot of respect and really understand that 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 warrior ethos that you're describing, how important that is when we're in and how useful and I would say effective in that uh, in that arena. So um, the way we would deal with stuff like that is if you're stressed out, if if it's been a rough week or, or whatever, whatever is coming up, you know, it involves usually a lot of drinking, a lot of alcohol. Uh, acting very, very wild, like beyond wild. This is not the college dorms. What we're going to do is we're going to drink a ton, probably damage some property, um, and then go outside and fight each other, full on fight each other, and then hug afterwards, and then maybe stay up all night and go surfing the next morning, you know, on the weekend. Or if it wasn't the weekend, then we wake up and go run five miles the next morning, all together, all loving each other the best way we know how, um, even to the point where we can brawl each other, get all that aggression, get all those feelings out, uh, and cause each other a little bit of injuries for real. And then hug afterwards and be like, all right, brother, let's go. This is good. So those coping strategies, I think it's safe to say are very frowned upon out here in the civilian world. Um, so that's one of the ways I connect with my veterans is I, I let them know that I have been there. Uh, and I understand how effective that was for them and how alienating it feels that these coping, these extreme coping strategies that you developed and relied upon, not almost none of them work besides maybe going for a run, um, out here, you're seen as different, weird, dangerous, scary, and at least you feel that you're, you're seen that way. Other people may see it as more concerning. They might be worried about you, but the way many of us see it is that we are now these scary alienated types of, you know, disgruntled veterans. And that causes a lot of separation. And when I say that to a veteran who's kind of hard to crack their shell and I'm like, listen, man, X, Y, and Z worked back in the military. You fight your friend, do all that stuff, go hang out right afterwards. And then now that's not working. 
my the response I usually get is, wow, you totally get it. And, <laughs> and, and like, one of them said, I've got the coolest therapist ever. Finally. And I'm like, okay, well, we're not working on that old stuff. Now we're working on some new stuff. So let's charge forward. And then we kind of try to look forward instead of so much into that. Um, so, yeah, it's, I think it's really important to, to be able to acknowledge that and respect that. And that's one tool I have as somebody with that experience. I think every clinician brings their own talents and tools and their own incredible things that they bring to the table. And I think that's just one of the things that I'm able to bring to my I, That validation is so important. And I think as behavioral health providers, it's so easy to jump in and like want to just quickly point out how problematic those are without validating in the context of the culture you were in and the context of your service, those worked. And that's great. And you like, I get it. And I think that's easy to do, even if you're not, I mean, it's wonderful if you've had that experience and you can do that, but I think providers in general can say, in the context of you serving as a Marine or in the context of you, you know, being downrange and doing X, Y, and Z, those behaviors like probably kept you alive were functional and fine. And just like that little moment is so important. And I think so many providers immediately want to pull that veteran over into mental health culture, which like invalidates all those things or like those are, those are problematic behaviors and we label them as dysfunctional. Um, and that's where we lose veterans, I think half the time too. So I, I think that's in a really important important point that you just made. Yeah, I, I, I think that's where a veteran kind of can get lost. I, I would almost describe it as that's when I see them dig in more. I think was, uh, I don't have a lot of experience outside of working with veterans in a clinical aspect, but I do with other populations and other service like education and, and social emotional learning. I used to, you know, head up a social emotional learning program and certain things that you're going to come at somebody with, well, somebody that's morally injured, it, it tends to make them want to dig in. And boy, veterans are, are ones to dig into a single point perspective. Uh, and when they dig in, um, it can be really hard to help them see other perspectives. And I think that becomes the goal at least one of the goals is to start really exploring perspective taking, but it starts with kind of getting in there with their perspective right now to kind of help walk them out of it or help them walk themselves out of it. It, it makes total sense. And what you were saying about digging in, it's it, it like in any situation, if you are immediately rejecting of someone's perspective, I mean, you can see this in almost any any sort of level of human interaction. Interaction, that person's going to dig in and defend that you know that stance even more as as a way of trying to help you see their perspective. But it just creates even more distance. So, yeah, like once you're willing as a provider to not have that failure of perspective taking and to get into that perspective then maybe that offers an opportunity, like you were saying, then to explore other perspectives. But until you're allowed to allow yourself um, to get into that same perspective uh, and see it, the rest of the work is, is more difficult. And so I'm curious, once, once you've been able to, you know, let it be known um, that you're, you're joining with and sharing that perspective with a veteran that you might be working with, how might you then start to begin to pivot towards maybe looking at some other perspectives? 
in <clears throat> first of all, in my experience so far, I believe it is important to not go down that road too much the of the old days on how you used to deal with it. It's I use it sparingly and uh, very specifically at, the, at what I hope is the right time just to kind of I like to kind of think it was just kind of cracking that shell open uh, and then leave it. Because if I, if we keep talking about that and we start going back and forth about it, then I'm no longer their, their therapist right now. I'm just another military buddy. And um, so just to be able to connect with them that way. And then as soon as possible, move forward. Um, So what was your question? So what, if we, how do I get them to start to entertain other perspectives? Yeah. So right. Exactly. And I'm glad that you clarified that, you know, once you've sort of touched on that perspective, that's not where you want to stay. You, and I'm curious about like how you begin to make that pivot and shift towards inviting, you know, that the person you're working with to maybe start to explore some of those perspectives. And also, I guess like related to that is what are some of the perspectives that, you know, could be useful to explore? Yeah. So that's an interesting question because everybody is so different, uh, yet they all have similar traits. So um, I found that some CBT tools can really help right out of the gate. In my experience, personally, I participated in CPT, cognitive processing therapy, which was the sort of the, uh, the initial first step I needed to start to loosen my single point dug in perspective because you develop this perspective in an environment that is life or death. Everything is life or death. Literally. If I have one speck of little tiny black piece of whatever in my rifle that they're going to say, you, what are you trying to get everybody killed? Right. So that's, that's literally what they would say. So the smallest things are life and death. So you kind of get dug in with that. And, and if in regular things, feel like life or death, whether that's um, going out in public, going to say a 12 step meeting, which was part of what I you know, needed to learn how to do at the time. Um, and so CPT really helped me do what CPT does, uh, go into a situation and be able to assess it for safety and start to question myself and challenge myself to see if my kind of only believing that there's a threat happening or that the people sitting behind me are dangerous or I can't handle it. I start to explore their perspectives. Well, how do I know that there's a threat right now? Um, and, and going down those challenging questions where you challenge yourself. So I think that's a really important way to begin to access that in the bigger picture. Um, I think it's more of an existential problem. Uh, It's more of a complete existential crisis, which is how you see and experience life in this world. Um, And there's a whole bunch of stuff in between, I guess we could talk about, too. So that's kind of like the the initial thing that I think is important is, um, say, for example, just those little interactions. Uh, A veteran will come to me and I can tell they're all tense and we're in session and um, somebody didn't return the hello in the hallway to them. He said, Hey, the other person didn't. Now it's, you know, F that guy, what, you know, I know he, I knew he hated me this whole time. And so just the basics with that. Okay. Well, how do you know? 
Um, starting to use the cognitive behavioral model just to just to challenge those thoughts for accuracy, I think is a great place to start before. Uh, let me rephrase. I think it's a great place to start because that is what, in my experience, helped me. And I see it helping others be able to go out and explore whatever form of help that they need uh, on their own. It empowers them. So with me, it ended up going to 12-step programs. I've been in recovery for 13 years. Congratulations. In a couple of days, it'll be 13 years, I believe. So, um, and then that turned into my Zen Buddhist practice, um, which I'll open it up right now. We can, that's a, <laughs> that might be a little bit. Well, Jenna's like, oh no, Zen Buddhism again. Don't get Andy started. We just did a. a never, <laughs> ever say that. I just will I sit back and happily listen. I'm joking with you, Jenna. Um, well, that was kind of a lot right there. Um, no, no. That, I mean, it, one, one of the things that I just think is really fascinating about what you described as sort of the one of the core features of CPT that you got from your experience, but also in the way that you think about it um, as being a, maybe a first step with helping veterans to make this pivot we've been talking about is that it's really um it's a perspective taking exercise and i don't know if often you know cbt practitioners think about you know looking at um unhelpful thoughts and and maybe challenging them as perspective taking but it's it absolutely is and it's it's such a i think it's such a a non-threatening nice segue into just the possibility that there could be other perspectives. So I really like the way you conceptualize that as a place to start. And that real life example you gave is just a, you know, it's a a very easy, it's not even about moral injury. It's not about challenging, Hey, like you're seeing this the wrong way. It's like, let's be curious about like, could there be another way to see this? Um, The existential perspective you thought I thought was really interesting. So when you start to help clients begin to look at that existential perspective, what might be like a first step just even to entertain the possibility of like that question, why are we here? (laughs) What is your life about? You know, like how might you start to just even gently introduce that, that perspective? Something that I've done, I've done this extensively also with my students who most of my students, um, I do it with my veterans too, and I'm going to about to do it with the police departments as well. Um, but I did it for like 12 years with students and these adolescents were from generally were from the worst parts of Baltimore city or DC or, or, or even rural areas that were really disadvantaged and these kids had trauma and moral injury and um and some of it looks a lot like what our veterans uh some of the symptoms our veterans are showing um so one thing that i found helpful for that is there's some mindfulness exercises that i do um and that involve being able to really watch your thoughts not just let let's sit here and watch our thoughts you know i will have somebody start with the breathing and of course all the basic mindfulness you know mind and body tools um but then we'll we'll pick something far off in the distance and uh, i'll have them ask themselves is that me so it could be like a tree across a field 
it, it, we're not visualizing it. We're actually looking at a real tree. We're outside. We're looking out a window and ask, is that me? And maybe on some super, on another higher level of Zen Buddhist uh, perspective, that is me, but not for this exercise, because we're, we're trying to, to back into ourselves here. And so, and then, so they decided that that's not me because who is the one watching that tree? And we walk it back, find something a little closer. We walk it back and ask ourselves the same questions, end up looking at their feet or their legs. Is that me? Well, it kind of is right. But if I didn't have my legs, would I still be me? Sure. We walk it back a couple more times until we close our eyes and let the thoughts come in and the thoughts leave. And we watch the thoughts and ask yourself, is that me? Well, if that's me, then who is the one watching the thinking? So right there, it's, I think an IFS, which I do internal family systems therapy as a, as a client, they would call it self-energy. Um, you know, different traditions are going to call that something different, but to be able to kind of free yourself of perspective first to be able to open up to other perspectives is one way um, to be able to, to do that in the, the more existential uh, side of things and the less like right here, right now, super practical uh, CPT side of things. Well, and, and also that I think that is a super practical way of introducing this because as soon as the word existential gets thrown out there, the word <laughs> philosophy, right? Like the, the word philosophy, but really, I mean, um, the way you're describing it and that sort of perspective taking exercise and act, we might call that uh, like a selfish context type exercise, helping shape uh, the ability to shift into an observing sense of self. Um, you know, so there's different traditions refer to it differently, but it is sort of a, just a very straightforward, practical way of helping shape one's ability to choose to be in that perspective, like even to find find a way to like notice they are in a perspective that they might be able to then shift and noticing the distinct features of their unique perspective. And that from that place, you might be able to, you know, look at things a little bit differently. So I really love that as a place to start. Right. So, you know, let me just add a little bit to that. So it's, it's, we could say you're not your thoughts and, you know, watch your thoughts. You're not your thoughts, but when you really take your time to have somebody truly experience that, that's a lot of times where I see their eyes open and they're like yeah, way different. I'll say, Holy shit. That was really cool. I've never been quiet like that. Or right. you, know, it's really, you can truly not identify with your thoughts because to me, moral injury is just part of it is this real over identification with suffering. <laughs> And it's really, I, I see it keeping people sick. If you have depression, maybe it feeds the depression or PTSD, anxiety, as long as there's some moral injury involved, I just see people resisting and resisting and resisting treatment for those other issues that they want to take care of. Um, and so just being able to free them from that briefly, just to show them, hey, there is a way there is something out there and, you know, I can help you explore it or I can help you get into a place, hopefully, where you can go explore it on your own to whatever, whichever way you see is best for you. 
I was kind of curious in, in hearing you talk about that in, with moral injury. I know we want to talk about post-traumatic growth as well. Is that kind of like almost an antidote a little bit to shift away from the suffering? How do we help our clients instead really keep their eye on post-traumatic growth? Um, not not dismiss the moral injury, but like how do you balance those two things? And, and would you say that does sort of help with... Um, you know, it's not not necessarily an antidote. I don't mean it. it it's that simple. But um, like, what what's your perspective on that? I guess. So, how to bring post traumatic growth into that? Is what... Yeah. So, if if the you know if if the suffering or this focus on suffering and the moral injury is maybe what's kind of keeping them stuck and um, feeding depression and and complicating PTSD, is that are there ways for us as clinicians to help support the shift to post-traumatic growth or, or the foot, you know, at least pay attention to possibilities for that um, as a, as a means of kind of getting you unstuck from the, from the impact of moral injury. So the, I think that's a big question. Uh, and I certainly don't have all the answers. I might not even have very many answers. Uh, I can have my experience and sort of what I do. Also, I mean, it starts with really taking the time to acknowledge what we've just done and reflect on that, whether it's a veteran who has a family member that's worried about them and doubting every decision that they make. And they feel like that person just thinks that they are, you know, a piece of crap and, and they have this perspective about that. And then walking them through um, the perspective, of taking exercise, whichever one you might choose to do. And then then they open up and they realize that there's about five, six, ten different reasons that person might be questioning my decision uh, in, instead of just simply thinking that I'm a piece of shit. Um, and then really taking the time to to pause and acknowledge that. Like, do you see what we just did? You know, how does that feel now to you to be kind of free from that one perspective? Um, so I think that that's kind of just an ongoing thing that I would do in a bigger sense. This isn't easy to pull off all the time, but I think service. If, if there's a way for um, veterans or anybody to get involved with serving others, I think that that's where you can really see a lot of the post-traumatic growth. That's where um, you, you start to reconnect with uh, my actions as being beneficial and not harmful. You know, so like over in Bosnia, um, that, that was a war, at least our NATO involvement in that. It seems pretty clear that it was for, in my opinion, good reasons. Uh, there wasn't a lot of question about it. There was a population that was experiencing a genocide. And you know, we wanted to stop that. At the same time, doing something good and seeing this damage, that is definitely against your your the fiber of your ethics and, and moral being. Um so that can really make one want to isolate and just pull back from everything. So getting out there and getting into service work, I think is really important. And maybe that just starts with, for instance, on the unit that I am a therapist on getting uh, folks involved in uh, service to the unit, whether that is doing a morning meeting um, or, or job or even managing the coffee machine, just little things like that, all the way into big things. For me, a big part of my post-traumatic growth, I mean, it might just be the biggest part 
I'd say it, actually it is, is service. It started when I was early on in this process and I saw these little cats. I remember this. <laughs> these little cats. I remember this. And these little cats are suffering and they're not people. So they're innocent, 100%. And some of them were sick and they're outside colonies of feral cats or cats that are dumped by people. And I started rescuing these cats and getting involved in this cat rescue. And it turned into a regular thing where I'd spend every Saturday there and just grueling, hard, dirty work. Um, not fun in, in a regular typical sense, but so important. And veterans started coming with me. Um, and next thing you know, I had four or five, six veterans are coming with me every weekend and, um, it's, it's literally crappy work. Um, but you feel so good about it and, and it starts to reconnect you to, uh, this, this drive you have to serve. And when you join the military, you, you, you're joining to serve to each might have to different degrees, but you are serving. Um, and so I took that and I ran with it. Uh, to the point where I moved into the shelter uh, and lived there for just about a year with 140 cats, <laughs> just <laughs> just volunteering like that. And that's where so much of my growth came from. So I'd really put it, the, the, a big part of that is, is showing them or helping them see that getting back into service can really, there's just so many lessons in there. And there's just such a, a an Steam builder. It just makes you feel so good, even when the work is kind of terrible. I think that fits really nicely with what you were saying earlier when we were sort of talking about maybe coping skills that worked in a military context that don't work now and context being the operative word here and uh, the idea of service. It's really scalable. And, you know, like you were talking about taking care of the community coffee pot all the way to your experience of, you know, beginning to, you know, uh, care for the, the feral cats. And then that scaled up a bit more to, you know, even like living in the shelter and sharing that with other people, shifting the context where the context supports connection and supports behavior that has a beneficial impact to other beings in and of itself, maybe create some possibilities for, for new behaviors to emerge. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I, I love the examples you're giving because you think about something like post-traumatic growth, it sounds so big. Existentialism sounds so big. Meaning and purpose sounds so big. It doesn't have to be giant. All it needs to be is a little shift in context, or maybe there's the possibility of reconnecting with purpose and meaning. Yes. Definitely. Um, and in my reading, I forgot where I got this from in my reading about post-traumatic growth, just because I, I fully experienced it and I continue to as a Zen Buddhist priest. I mean, my life is service. It just is. I kind of sometimes say it's like the mafia or something. Even if I try to get out, it just keeps pulling me back in. So I've just well, accepted that. I remember the comment you made to me after you became a priest. And I said, oh, congratulations, Dave. I don't know if you remember this, but you said, uh, I think of this more as a demotion than anything, which I thought was great, you know, because it's a service position. Right. So putting other people's practice um, and other people's uh, space to learn meditation before mine and making that my practice. Uh, so this, so in my reading about post-traumatic growth, there's three, there's a few things that were mentioned, self-forgiveness. I mean, what better way to get some self-forgiveness than 
and going and doing service, uh, self-worth uh, and corrective and repairing experiences, especially in a service community, like a volunteer community, you're going to meet some of the most off the wall people, but you can't deny their heart. I think that's so important for um, veterans or anybody with moral injuries to really reconnect with that sense of compassion and start to repair and, and kind of correct their view of what it means to serve and that other people are doing this too. It's not, the world is not this terrible place to, or even if it is, there's a whole nother team of people out here, teams, plural, that are out here trying to correct it and make things better. Um, and I think that's one of the most valuable things for any of us to experience. And now it's, it's who I am. So I don't, I don't really subscribe to a meaning of life, but I think a purpose, uh, maybe the meaning. And in my, if Zen, if you can consider Zen, my existential therapy, I don't really know much about the, uh, y'all, um, ex existential therapy. No, I don't know much about that stuff yet, but Zen has been my existential therapy. Um, and, and it continues to give me a sense of purpose. Um, where meaning, I don't need to wrestle with the meaning so much. I just kind of let that go. And I just do. And I know that if I'm serving, it's good. And that's it. And that's, that's all you need. I mean, you know, from, from the perspective of acceptance and commitment therapy, you know, values-based behavior, behaviors that are intrinsically have purpose to you and doing those things here and now is a life of meaning and purpose. And also, you know, um, I, you were saying that the, the path of a Zen priest is your path. And I think the point is exactly that everybody's going to have a different one. And there's all sorts of different opportunities out there to reconnect with service and do things that have purpose to them. And so as we're getting near the end of our episode here, one of the things we always like to do, Dave, is ask our guests for just a couple of pieces of actionable intel, things that our clinicians who are listening might be able to, you know, listen to advice to take that might help them to move just a little bit further along down the road of, uh, you know, being competent in, in working with service members and veterans. So do you have a couple of pieces of actionable intel that our listeners might be able to take and use if they want to be even more effective in working with moral injury and helping clients pivot towards post-traumatic growth? Yeah, I think so. Um, so one thing that we brought up and I really appreciate, but I, I don't want to get out of here without reiterating that is validate validation um, and genuine respect for military culture and the coping strategies that these folks are using in the military. Um, just maybe a constant reminder that we can always give ourselves for that because it can be really difficult and challenging when you've got somebody who's just dug in and you just want to be like, come on, just, just do the thing, <laughs> you know, and, and you'll see that it's better. Um, but really validating and understanding where they're coming from. You know, it kind of goes out saying, but I think it reminding I remind myself of that as much as possible. And I find that helpful. Um, moral injury is not a fad. Please be open minded to it. There is a, I have picked up on, um, you know, differing opinions and, and that's great and everything like that. But I've actually heard, you know, some people just wholly discount it and, and seem very close-minded to it. And I would just encourage to please give it a chance. Some of us have 
experienced it. I didn't know that the words moral injury was what I was experiencing until I went to grad school and I was doing a paper on trauma and I just stumbled upon this and I was like, oh my goodness, here it is. This is me. Sure, I had PTSD. Sure, I had some trauma, but really, if I had to place anything on the suffering, if I had to choose one thing that really described it, it would have been this. This is what made it really hard to recover for so long. Um, it's not limited to combat jobs. I think most people know that. Um, but those veterans that didn't experience combat, there's plenty of opportunity for moral injury in the military without combat. Uh, in an intense environment like that, um, it is absolutely there. And we've been talking about taking perspectives, foster whatever methods you have to help uh, these folks take as many perspectives as possible and experience the freedom of that. And it's a very opening experience. When that's successful on a session, when somebody, when a, the veteran does the work and they're responding to some of the guidance and, and they experience that, I just see their body change. They just, op- they just seem to open right up. Their muscles relax. It, the problem isn't so big anymore. It's a lot more manageable. And, you know, that daily functioning part where uh, that sense of purpose and um, and that sense of purpose as a service to others, I think you can't really go wrong with that as long as you don't overdo it. So I think that would be my actionable intel that I can think of right now. Oh, man. So many good things. Validating military service, genuine respect to start with, uh, remembering moral injury is not a fad. This is a thing, a real thing that could be really important concept for, um, you know, veterans who are struggling to understand about what they're going through, help put it in perspective, and then working on that collaborative perspective taking and introducing it. And then introducing opportunities or fostering opportunities for maybe clients to begin to explore service so they can reconnect with a sense of purpose. I think those are all really, really wonderful suggestions. Um, so, so Dave, I sincerely appreciate your willingness uh, to come on the podcast. I know it's a little cliche to say, but I, I want to thank you for your service, both as a veteran, but also in the work you're doing um, in your clinical work. And also, you, you know, your work as a, a Zen priest um, in your community there as well. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. And thank all of you for your service and um, not only the service you do as clinicians and um, in your typical roles, but also for this podcast, um, getting the word out there, I think is so important and just continuing the conversation. So thank you for that. Our pleasure. Well, thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice. We'll see you next time, everybody. Thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice. Please feel free to subscribe, rate, and join in on the conversation in the comments. Until next time. 